Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. The somber, quiet voice from Cannes in France is David Belzer. We're going to have a little late night voice going. Blaine Bartlett is with me. Learn out blainebartlett.com forward slash LMM, my mentor and so many others. Changing the world one mentor at a time. Blaine, welcome back to Office Hours with me. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, my friend. Doing well. Uh, well Keeping it simple today from France. So we got it. You know, I always screw up everyone's name. So if I screw up this name, you know I'm exhausted because it's midnight here in France. But David Livermore is in the house. <laughs> and he is the founder of the Cultural Intelligence Center, um, dealing with uh, probably one of our greatest uh, issues of separation uh, as we look through the rethinking of our biggest institutions that technology through its unbelievable pace and stress that is put on uh, change uh, is very difficult for very large companies to change. But even more importantly, uh, our institutions have an extremely difficult time and it creates polarization, separation. And he has a new book out, I think, to help us put this at ease, a new book talking about this digital, diverse and divided and uh, how we talk to people who are creating separation, not cohesion. Da David, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, David. Thanks, Blaine. Great to be with you both. It's yeah. so interesting, uh, you know, through our lifetime, how, and Blaine may be a tidbit older, how we are circling back to more separation. And I see, as you talk, this you know, digital diverse and divide has created a greater awareness to uh, a separation that maybe we were overlooking, um, or maybe it is just an awareness of the progress that we've made and the progress that we need to make. How do you look at this new digital diverse and divided that exists that we have this, you know, huge polarization in all types of different areas from politics, religion, to gender and race? Yeah, I, I, I like the way you led into that because I, I think you're right. In one way, it feels like we're coming back full circle to tribalism and resorting to ourselves. Um, and I'm, I'm not a pessimist. I think, as you've noted, that technology is allowing us to be in three very different places at the moment and communicate. So certainly I'm not Mr. Anti the digital world. But yeah, I, I would say how I look at it is, you know, most of my career has been devoted to looking at differences between France and the U.S. or China and Germany. And uh, more recently, as I've watched even within the U.S., the growing polarization that might exist within one extended family that don't have different passports, but have very different views on Trump or reproductive rights or you name it. And it just struck me that, wow, so, some of these divisions that I've been trying to help global corporations deal with are no longer just international issues. They're right within our own borders. You know, it's, it strikes me and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, the idea and I'm, I'm referencing here the subtitle of your book, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots and Overcome Polarization. And all three of these deal with, and this is kind of the full circle conversation again, all three of these deal with the increase in the rate of change that mm -hmm. we're experiencing as a species. And my take on change isn't so much it's the change that's the problem. It's the disruption to existing relationships that change causes. 
And some of those relationships uh, are relationships with my sense of identity. So I'd be real interested, David, from your perspective. Yeah, the idea here of using evidence-based cultural intelligence, as as you kind of frame it here, to work together to handle some of these change issues that are really relationship issues. Yeah, I think you've nailed it, Blaine. the the change itself is is not really the problem it's it's what it may be saying about me and what it says about how i relate to other people and really you know people often ask me how i got into this work on you know the science of cultural intelligence and you know i i sometimes will use the safe answer of well i was working with a lot of international organizations we were trying to figure out how to help them get along but i think you just put your finger on what was the more personal mission that was driving me on this. And that was my own kind of identity crisis of having grown up in one kind of figured environment and world and suddenly being exposed to a much broader world and going, uh, you know, does this mean everything I thought growing up as a kid and a very conservative environment and home was wrong? Or is it, you know, that there are multiple ways of seeing the same thing? So, yeah, I, I think that the identity issues and the way that spills over into relationship and the way that then spills over into the workplace that I know you guys do so much work on um, is really, I think, the amalgamation of where this all kind of hits hits the fan, if you will. <laughs> and it splatters. It splatters. <laughs> and David, I take a different perspective as well, just being blessed to be in technology since 1992, which has now been 30 years of acceleration in my life of understanding searchability, accessibility, um, seeing how efficiencies are created. And this created a great divide. Um, And you can see it, you know, in uh, the old days with languages. uh, And now I see speed um, and convenience as actually something that creates divide for those that know how to utilize technology to create these efficiencies or effectiveness. You can get a hundred times more productivity out of people who understand it than people that don't. Um, But one of the core issues uh, that I think is directly related to your book is I think things are so easy. We're forgetting how easy they are, meaning that the, you know, our core fear factor of feed, flight, fight, or fornicate um, is so easy. You get fed so easy. You can fight someone so easily. You right. can fight somebody. You know. You can have have that uh, other other sensation so easily today uh, because of technology that we start looking for you know things to stimulate our aggressive survival mode behavior and. I think it's part of the reason, not all of it, for the cancel culture that you have an entire generation that has it so easy that they can have the time and the interest uh, to sometimes, I think, be unrealistic about, you know, what the problem is. And I seem a lot of times with my own children to say that's very much a first world problem, one that I never thought we'd even have to address in my home because I was so worried about getting off of food stamps and buying my mom a house. Uh, and so how do you think the cultural intelligence generationally of the ease of life, especially concerning our, our basic needs, uh, are affecting 
this divide as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I think to your point, um, and I don't, I don't know how much of it is gener generationally driven, like so many individuals, how many times has somebody posted something and then you say, well, actually that article you just posted is from four years ago. So you made it look like it was something that just happened this way. Oh, I didn't actually read the article. Well, then why the hell did you post it on your social media channel? Um, you know, what's, what's interesting on the, the generational is, so in our research on cultural intelligence, people have sometimes said the reverse to what you've thoughtfully presented here, David. And that's people have said, well, you know, aren't millennials more culturally intelligent, like that they're adept with technology. They know what it's like to connect with someone, you know, that they were using MySpace or Skype or whatever long before all the rest of us learned we had to in COVID. And uh, our research actually finds that age doesn't predict whether or not you're cultural intelligent or not, because perhaps similar in terms of your work on, on tech, we're not just talking about awareness. We're talking about, do you actually have the skill to get along with someone who views the world differently than you. So yes, you find that the younger generation tends to have a higher sensitivity toward, are we LGBTQ plus friendly? Or do we highlight diversity? But do I actually have the skill to work effectively with someone who's from a different background? No, to your point, like I'm triggered if there's a speaker on campus who's talking about something that, that offends me. And, you know, I'm going to straddle both sides of this here. I, I think there's appropriate times when we need to say, ah, was that the best decision for a university to make? But on the other hand, like I thought our academies were supposed to be bastions of diverse thought and we welcome it. So I'm going all over the place. You kind of like struck a nerve for me. There, yeah. speaking generationally <laughs> and thinking through the lens of my own kids as well. But um I, I wonder, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to be the one being interviewed here, but David, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more. Your comment a couple moments ago, you said you've been watching since the early 90s that technology was creating divides. Are you saying in terms of technological literacy or access or? Yeah, three areas that I believe technology has helped. You know, early on, for example, when they had high speed modem access, they gave it to five cities. Uh, San Diego, Akron, New York, and Seattle, um, and San Francisco. And you saw uh, an extraordinary divide of productivity. And so what happens through productivity is, you know, reward and success. And I see that as people learn different platforms, there becomes this technological productivity divide that the proficiency of those who Utilize, you know, I was on an airplane, my daughter just going to Wisconsin, for example, and I, I, I literally was so far removed from someone sitting by me on the airplane that said, well, you know, we really just got internet, and, right, in some part of Wisconsin. And, and I know in Woobie Island, where, where Blaine is right now, that he still doesn't have the best internet, and I don't know when they got it out there, but he's sitting literally right next to probably one of the most proficient cities in the world. And so, you know, when you have this, you know, divide of people that are still plumbers that aren't even online. And I think people lose perspective because so many people have cell phones, but it doesn't mean they are using them to be proficient. They, they may still just be using them to talk to each other. And I think as I've seen in the legal profession, when I started and the lawyers that knew how to use Westlaw or Lexis compared to the ones that were still using the books, it created this huge divide and I see mm -hmm. it still happening today in 
multiple ways when someone knows how to use a certain app, uh, you know, that can change your life and give you six hours a day back uh, or, or causes you to lose your job. Even uh, it, it can be, you know, qu quite a separator. I thought. Hmm. Yeah. That whole idea of, you know, in taking what you're just saying there, David, uh, the awareness of what's available is one thing. Awareness isn't enough. I mean, it does open up choices, but unless I you know, find ways to act on those choices and develop skills necessary to actually leverage those choices, I'm, I'm basically dead in the water. And uh, I'd like to just kind of, you know, David Livermore here, <laughs> uh, the idea of yeah, the, the human brain. And this is, I'm going to you know, kind of get into some of your evidence-based uh, content here. My experience of most people is that we will tend to sort for differences when we're interacting with other people. And what I'm interested in, does your research data suggest that if we can learn how to sort for similarities as well as sorting for differences, there's an equalizing component there that begins to re, you know, reduce the polarization where something else becomes possible. Is that a fair assessment? Spot on. Th thanks for saying in, in one paragraph what we spent years to research, you know, as is typical of academics, right? Um, yeah, Blaine, that, that's a really important insight. So to start with the first, that our impulses immediately, to back to what the other David said a couple of minutes ago, you know, fight or flight or, you know, friend or foe kind of thing. And just we're anyone who says, like, I don't I don't see difference. I don't see color bull. Like the brain immediately notices size and age and skin color and gender, or at least what we, we think the gender is. Um, it, it's really, I, I promise I'm going to get back to your point on, on the research, but it's really interesting you ask this because the holy grail of intercultural work is the very thing you just said, like, let's focus on differences. And I remember early on in my PhD work saying to my advisor, I really wanted to focus on the similarities of how people learn, even if they're, you know, from fairly tribal. And it was like, that's so superficial. No, you have to focus on the differences. And I mean, I understood her point. Um, but now, the longer that I've looked at this and some of the, uh, the most recent research we've looked on, the, the links between cultural intelligence and polarization comes right back to your point, Blaine. I, I think our overemphasis on difference is just further dividing us. And, you know, to, to use a triggering term, perhaps for some of uh, your audience, uh, critical race theory, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, largely seen as the originator of Crenshaw herself says that her work in intersectionality that says, hey, even if you take the yeah. three of us who might largely identify as Caucasian, I don't know, I'm making assumptions by, by looking at you guys, even if you take the three of us, we all come from many different subcultures, so you can't just assume we're the same. And Crenshaw herself says that her work has been taken to be identity politics on steroids, where if you don't have the exact experience as this other person, then who the hell are you to be saying anything about it? So, yeah, where our research comes into bear on that is, is the very hypothesis that you had, Blaine, that is maybe we can actually leverage this and create subcultures around some kind of shared problem that we want to address, you know? Mm -hmm. like, we're, we're probably not going to get people to agree on defund the police or there's just a few bad apples, 
but we might be able to agree on we all want to be safe in our communities and we think you should be innocent until proven guilty so could we leverage the shared outcome that we want to get to and then suddenly go I don't care if Blaine is a couple of years my senior or lives up the coast from me or, you know, is this color skin or wants to be called they down. I'm not saying that's Blaine's preferred pronouns, but whatever <laughs> they are. Like, doesn't really matter to me. Can we can we find a shared point of, of connection? To, to that measure, I think I should kick off Blaine for not having the right first name. We gotta find <laughs> we should get David Marino in here. That'd been better. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think one word as we close out, because I know uh, our next friend is waiting and we do want to have you back because these are the conversations that yeah. not only are so important to Blaine and I, but uh, also just very stimulating to me. I just, I love to stretch my mind of like, man, can we solve like really big problems that have been around since history itself? Uh, and so it's, you know, just so much fun for me to participate in, in the perception of it. Uh, but I think one word, you know, really comes to mind is, you know, I'm, going to read this new book digital diverse and divided um it's the word appreciation i think beyond the measure of do we you know look at or are we aware of the differences or aware of the similarities i think an overarching perspective of appreciation are those who look for love and light and, and lessons in how we are the same but also have the capability of looking for love light and lessons in the differences of each other and i think that's what your professor was trying to articulate to you way, way back when. Um, and, you know, I'm a huge gratitude person and the person who appreciates and tries to, except for minutes and moments in the day. So I think, you know, taking that into the cultural consideration of how powerful gratitude is and how we can heal and put ourselves at ease and close that divide uh, that so often is not one of appreciation um, and, one of separation instead. So uh, David, let's keep uh, the conversation alive, keep the research going so we can still raise the awareness for, for everyone. Please come back and join us uh, again. We have a lot more questions and uh, you know, we'll, I won't bring Blaine next time. We'll bring David Marino. So, uh, <laughs> I'll, anyone different. I'll bring both of you. Yeah. <laughs> Dave's not a middle-aged white man, so that doesn't help. So I'll have to figure this out myself. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you, Blaine. Really appreciate it. Uh, David, yeah, great having you on the show. Thank you very much. I love your work. Me too. Thank I you. would look forward to reading it. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's amazing. All right. I, I like the romantic voice, Dave, here in France. Yes. You know? Hey, you've got this sultry thing kind of. You know, just... they, they, uh, ju- they, now uh, now uh, I know why Julia is stu- stuck with you for so long. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> the old days. Um they moved her flight up. I've never heard this. They moved her flight up three hours uh, on the same day, notified her, hey, you got to be in L.A. three hours early. And so yeah. she had a really long layover um, in Amsterdam. Uh, oh, my so, goodness. But she, so I'm keeping it very quiet here in France for office hours. It's the quiet edition. Um, but hopefully Alex will uh, light it up with you. You guys can be as loud as you want. Chief Executive Officer of UMail. And, uh, you know, wow, it's one of our next door neighbors. When I'm not in France, I'm right by uh, Alex uh, there in Irvine. Um, but talk about proficiency and the separation that it creates. Umail absolutely uh, has developed an unbelievable solution that can certainly help all of us uh, 
something that I'm dealing with right now. Actually, I was going to see if my team can give him a call because uh, we need some more efficiencies uh, in what we're doing uh, with our, our mail, especially. Um, Alex, you are basically a scientist. You have, uh, you're a co-inventor. You're, you're making things happen with uh, some of the most annoying problems that we have, but also disruption and interference between our own productivity and accessibility that really can cost us a lot of money. Um, how long has it taken you uh, to develop something that you feel confident that works so well uh, in your space? Well, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, we've been working at this now for a better part of 10 years, um, not always on solving the robocall problem, but on building pieces of it, you know, being able to collect interesting data, being able to figure out where calls are coming from, being able to block calls, all that over time is what gets us to a compelling solution to the problem. So it's a really hard problem. And it's not just those of us at email working on it. A lot of people have worked on it now for a long time. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, 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 this mail solution, I mean, yeah, you, you sold your first company to AOL. You've got mail. You know, ding. <laughs> so this, this space has been fascinating. You know, Yahoo Mail, Gmail, you know, there, there's so many mail providers out there. And I'm not going to you know, put, put uh, the company in that, in that bucket. But the idea of communication and sorting through all of the stuff that comes through. One of the things that I'm just in kind of reading the, um, the, the prep sheet uh, prior to our interview here, the idea of UMail and the robocall index is to actually eliminate the annoyance that so many of us you know, are experiencing. And I'm assuming it's an algorithmically structured protocol. You mentioned email, right? So it used to be that email had a massive spam problem. Like, you know, yep. those of us have been around for a while, 10, 15 years ago, it was unusable, right? Yeah. Message after message. And what happened was a lot of folks worked on that problem, right? The, the folks like Gmail and Hotmail all tried to reduce spam. There was legislation and regulation to try to reduce good guys blasting you with, with emails you didn't want. Uh, there's technology advances on the security side, so you can kind of tell if an IP was good. They did all that work. And so what did the spammers do? Well, they're still emailing you, just not as much and you know, fewer get through. But they've moved to calls and in voicemails, which is where the, our email came in. And they're also mm -hmm. moving to text messages. So the bad guys are going to use whatever channel they have where they have the best chance to get through at the lowest cost and get real results. And so that's, that's just what's happening now and why the robocall problem is... It's such a disaster for people, right? It's extremely yeah. easy to go make robocalls. We like to say that making robocalls cheaper than showing a banner ad. Um, they work. People pick up the phone and, oh, is this the IRS? So I got to talk to you, that sort of thing. And, you know, the bad guys get away with it and make a lot of money. And it's really hard to shut them down. And therefore, you wind up with an explosion. And the more people work on it, you know, the FCC with regulations and carriers and third-party companies like us, it's kind of like holding a basketball underwater and letting the air out really slowly. So it takes a long time before the problem goes away. It's just yeah. a hard problem. And the problem is not just personal, although there's, I think, almost 12 million users utilizing uh, and blocking robocalls, but it's a business issue. And I know with your company, there are over 150,000 businesses of all sizes uh, that trust you, Mail. Um, what are some of the business issues that 
some of the people listening today may not even think about other than just the, the scams, you know, and, and just so people know, I always like a little PSA, public service announcement. The IRS will never call you. <laughs> so do not accept the call from the IRS. Matter of fact, the IRS seldom answers your calls. So that's right. Exactly. So anyone listening, spread the word. Letters you don't want to open. They will mail you. I promise they will mail you in the old fashioned way that is slow and expensive. You're asking a great question. So there's different kinds of businesses and they're affected in different ways. Like one kind of business is the, the gig person, the person who's a dog walker, a real estate agent, and they're an individual using their cell phone to run a business. They want to answer the phone. Every time they answer the phone, it could be a client, a prospect, a partner. But half the time now, really half the time, it's going to be some sort of junk call they answer. So it's a huge productivity sink on them. It's stressful. You're walking a client around a showing and now a call comes in. Was it another client? Then maybe I say, excuse me, and answer it. Is it a spammer? Of course, I don't want to do it. So they've got the problem of just constant interruption. As you get bigger, when you get into enterprises, the fraud problem of someone posing as an exec demanding somebody do something becomes an issue. And then the brand problem becomes an issue. I'm sure you've all gotten calls claiming to be Amazon or claiming to be Google or claiming to be Apple and you've made a purchase and you know let them know if there's a problem, press one. Those are huge problems and then help destroy the brand. If you're Norton and you're a security service and there's somebody making tens of millions of calls every week pretending to be you, that's not a great thing for your brand, right? Or, or your solution. And so different folks in business are affected in different ways. Yeah, the, you know, and we're just kind of leap forward here. We've got a political season coming up. Uh, the robocalls that uh, politicians and, and you know, the campaigns will actually utilize. Yeah, how, how does this come into play with some of the work that you're, you know, you're doing with, uh, with UMail? So the really interesting thing is political robocalls tend to be legal. There are exceptions in the various statutes that thought, allow, yeah. allow those calls, but they're not necessarily wanted. So we find a lot of people get us as an app and our paid service, Email Plus, has a CAPTCHA. So any audio person that you don't know, your phone's not going to ring and they're going to have to press a key code, a couple of keys to prove they're a person. They love having that because it gets rid of not only the scammers, but the spammers and even the legal people who they just don't want to hear from. And so what you find during political season is people just block everything. They, they know stuff is going to be get through. They don't care. They, they don't want the debt collector. They don't want the payment reminder. They don't want the, the politician. They're just going to block whatever's there. And then they'll probably block less, you know, once, once January comes around. And then some of the other capabilities that other people may not even think of is voicemail to text uh, transcriptions and the value of being able to screen in that manner as well to allow things to, you know, be able to be transcribed before or after or during call, a call. Um, what are the benefits and what capabilities do you have on the voicemail to text transcription services? So, so more generally, all of us would like an assistant to answer the phones for us, right? And if you have a good assistant, they're going to seem very professional and greet the caller in a nice way. And if they recognize the number, greet them by, hi, David, hi, Blaine, you know, that, that sort of thing. They're going to, if, they, if you're busy, they'll send them a text message. They'll give them choices, press one to do this, press two to do that. They'll take a message. They'll transcribe it, send it to you. We just try to have email, aside from protecting you, be a great executive assistant for handling phone calls. And, you know, different levels of, of what I would say proficiency or features. 
And so that, uh, that feature is very popular among the individual business person who gets a lot of calls and loves being able to not answer their phone and know they'll get a really well-transcribed voicemail. The person, the client who called them got a text saying, hey, I'll get back to you, maybe a link to the website or an email address they can send email instead. It really is trying to smooth those communications because really in a lot of ways, a voicemail is a failed communication, right? You tried to get a hold of somebody, they weren't there, you're going to leave a message. Well, you want to make sure they have a great experience when they do that. They don't just call, well, let me call the next real estate agent or the next dog walker. That's, yeah. Actually, that, that, that piece is quite brilliant. <laughs> I, I think it, it truly is. It's so successful. That's quite brilliant. <laughs> yeah, quite brilliant. That's quite brilliant. Because uh, you know, the transcription I get right now, I mean, just using AT&T service, I mean, you know, on the voicemail, it's, uh, it's okay. It's okay. Um, but something that the way that you're describing it, that could be a fascinating add-on to some of the stuff that we're doing here. So uh, I'm going to check that out, <laughs> quite frankly. I'm going to check that well, out. And the way, the way to view it is the voicemail is a small part of the whole calling experience. Like you really right. want someone to answer your phone in the optimal way. And we try to move toward that. And, you know, the voicemail of text is, a, is an easy feature to build maybe badly as some of the carriers have done. But you can build and get it going. It's that great experience where everybody's greeted by name. And the text message sends them where they can email you if, you know, if you're busy or go to your website or the rest of that experience. You know, the, the fact that you can have an auto attendant on a cell phone and look like a really big business, right? Press one if you're trying to schedule an appointment, press two. It may still leave the same message, but it's felt like, oh, there were a couple of options for me that I could do when I call. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of stuff that a phone system can do about building your personal brand. And people text. We support that, too. But it's really about calling when you want to get a deal done. When something's really important, you tend to move to phone calls. Maybe yeah. not if you're 18, but by the time you're 28, you're thinking about it, and 38, you're doing it. Yeah, and the value of a phone number will continue to rise as multiple platforms uh, segregate audiences and communities. The phone is still the ubiquitous uh, platform to speak to one another, and uh, the value of that phone number and integrity of your phone number, being able to make sure that you're utilizing the people who call you as effectively as the people that you call, which is another business issue. If you're saving people from wasting time on the phone, they may be missing your call, uh, which is a legitimate business call as well. So uh, email, no doubt why they're so successful, no doubt why they'll continue to be successful, led by a experienced entrepreneur with the experience in running, building, scaling, and exiting uh, businesses in your space. Umail is Y-O-U-M-A-I-L.com. Please, if you are any size business or a person who wants to be more productive, accessible, and believe it or not, even gracious, give them a call. There are next door neighbors there in Irvine. Alex Quilici, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to seeing you when I get home. Thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> Good every time show, thank Alex. You. Love your work. One. Really great guest today. I limited yeah. it to two superstars uh, only because of the travel and the respect uh, of our time and connectivity, just in case. Uh, but what was your takeaway? We had two extraordinary guests. And they both spoke to connection in mm. some ways. And uh, you know me, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I, I default towards the notion that everything is connected. You know what I mean? And it's not just a notion, it's a scientific fact. Everything is connected. But when we upscale it, when we uh, you know, kind of go to human scale, learning how to actually leverage connection and not 
the differences, the similarities, the ways that things can dance together. So, you know, both with David and with Alex, I think they've got, you know, technologically and uh, uh, from a research base uh, perspective, ways that enhance the, 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 the connectivity that is part of the human condition and part of our birthright, honestly, is to experience being connected, not isolated. So, I mean, this kind of gets into a whole philosophical realm that I, it's almost one o'clock in the morning for you. So I'm not going to go there deeply at all. But that's what I'm taking away today is you know, when we stop and breathe and take a moment, we recognize that we are connected. Everything's connected. And it's in that connection that possibilities emerge for enhancing the experience of living on this planet. And you certainly enhance my experience living here. And my takeaway is that we talk about, you know, entrepreneurs being young. We talk about technology gurus being young. And, you know, as we show on the multiple hundreds of shows that we have, you know, the average entrepreneurs, you know, 45 to 65. And yeah, the people yeah. who are leading the way in technology are you know, not all, but the majority of them are 45 to 65. Uh, and they may not uh, be doing the development anymore but they're applying the critical business and life issues and finding the young engineers and young developers to help assist them into making it real. But there's a certain skill set that just takes time. And I think both understanding cultural intelligence and the impact of digital uh, on our world culturally, and then also just a specific solution like Umail uh, from someone, his exit was not that small either. It was over $200 million to AOL. Yeah, 200 uh, million. So the, the, you know, this is a, a, a thing for young entrepreneurs. You have to put in the work and uh, it, it takes time. So start early and be consistent and it'll take less time than it does for other people, but it does take time. Uh, there are no overnight successes. There's just people who, who start earlier or work more efficiently, effectively, and statistically successful uh, in what they do and how they work. As Blaine has taught me, Blaine Bartlett, learn blainebartlett.com forward slash LMM, the mindset mastermind. Reach out and join him. Uh, most valuable uh, mentor I've had in my entire business career. And that's you know, guys like Jack Campbell, Bob Proctor, and at all others, this man can help make the most of your personal and professional life. Thank you so much for giving me the mindset to help other people as well, Blaine. Thanks for joining me. Hey, brother, I love you. You're doing good work. Get some sleep tonight. Give Julie a hug. <laughs> I will, man. Say hi to Cynthia. The great uh, Blaine Bartlett, everyone. Thank you so much. Matt, thank you very much. I know you didn't have to stay up. Usually I'm thanking you for waking up at 5.30. That's easy for me. Staying up late is not my, my jam, as they say, these young people, but I did it. And uh, all the way from Cannes here in France, one of the most beautiful places on earth, with one of the most beautiful people on earth, Blaine Bartlett, I want to remind you to be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.